I'm grateful to be here. When I walk into this room, I have one person that I think about who's not here. Uh, this is the room that Doyle operated in, and I'm aware of that. I, I knew Doyle for about 20 years. I pastored in Kansas City for 15 years, and Doyle was here during all of that time. I actually sat in on church last week at home at my kitchen table, drinking coffee, and really in utter amazement at all that you did in walking that fine line uh, that worship would demand, and for it to have such a personal tilt to it. I really actually enjoyed being uh, with you, and I was amazed at what I experienced from worship. At uh, some point, when I get a chance to talk with you further, maybe more independently, you can tell me what that service meant to you that were here. The importance of being able to gather together and to come to celebrate and to remember. And the celebration is a huge part of the way in which we uh, work with our, our grief, that grief is something that we do. Well, my calling by you is to serve you as your intentional interim pastor. That means there's some public portions of it like this, and then there's a lot of behind the scenes work that I'll get to do uh, in sync with your staff and in sync with your leadership team. And uh, in the first six or seven months, we will work on a sequence of conversations. That's a part of the intentional interim process. We get to have some conversations about things. And then the pastor search committee will take it from there. They will begin soon in, in the early stages of 2022 of working uh, on the, the details that they need to be doing. And I'll have more to say about the process in the days to come. We should consider how all of us can be a part of the process. I'll just lay it out there that there's a role for all of us who are active members of this congregation to interact with what's being talked about and to add your voice to the conversation itself. We should also consider that to be a work of the spirit that we do in this church as we think about the future and as we act in sync with one another and as we move toward the future. In life, there is a pendulum that swings back and forth between event and reflection. Things happen and we think about them and we reflect upon them. You've had two major events in the last four or five years since you did your setting sail program in which now it, they've happened and now we need to reflect upon them, one of, the, of which is the COVID and the way that it interacts with us as we gather and the way in which we are in the community, the way in which we've, we've cloistered ourselves for a period of time in order that we might survive the pandemic. The other is the loss of your pastor. I'm really more interested, uh, between the pendulum swinging, I'm more interested in the reflection of what you think about these things and how you think about them. This long season of pandemic, uh, recurring pandemic, we would say, and the waves that come from that and about your, the death of your pastor. I hope to be an encourager with you. I hope to be your friend. I'm not joining the church. I'm not here to 
launch a program that uh, maybe you don't want. I'm not that at all. I want us to begin thinking together and working together. I wonder if we'd have a prayer before I read this scripture. Would you join me? God, I'm grateful to you today that you are here with us, masked or not, separate or not, but the great opportunity to be in front with you and for the opportunity for us to worship together. And so I pray that you'd open up our hearts and our minds so that we might think and, and worship together. Thank you, O oh God. Amen. The scripture that you're going to see up here, 1 Kings, this comes from the royal historian. The historian of the royal court put this together for us, and it is a rendering of what is taking place in the day. It, it's broken up into two little sections because I didn't want to read for 25 minutes the long arc of this story. So we'll, we'll hit a couple of the highlights. First Kings 2. Then David slept with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. The time David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his kingdom was firmly established. And then we jump over a few verses to 1 Kings 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, only he sacrificed and offered incense at the high places. Remember, there's no temple. So they go to the high places to offer sacrifice in their worship. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the principal high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I should give you. There is a gift of maturity that comes when you ask for what you want. The Bible says this. I thought it was Jesus for a while until I actually looked it up. You have not because you ask not. The simplicity of knowing the right request to make to God. And Solomon said, you've shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father David, because he walked with you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept him this day, this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne today. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father at David, although I'm a little child. That's not really true, but that's what he feels. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of the people whom you have chosen, a great people. So numerous they cannot be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people able to discern between good and evil. For who can govern this, your great people? And it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. If you were Solomon, what would you ask for? The word of God for the people of God. 
Thanks be to God. Well, make no mistake about this, whether you're the king of Israel or the queen of Sheba, it matters not. If you are a leader, when you die, someone else will rise up and take your place. More than likely, they've been thinking about this day with relish for some time. Thinking about when you might pass off of the scene and when the, the, vac the vacancy sign is put out. There's an opening here. This is the way it happens in the world. When you die, someone will rise and take your place. King David has died and his obituary is painfully short for what historians call the pinnacle of Israel's success. He took them from a handful of tribes and nation states and he solidified them together and then he began to beat down the other countries close by, the other tribal groups, not really countries. These are tribal groups. And then he dies. Forty years of his leadership. No expressions of grief, they're not there. No poetic psalms written in his honor. No one's inspired to write. No state funeral. Just the simple announcement that David rested with his ancestors and was buried. Pretty terse. It's amazing how short it is. It's amazing how little regard is given to the greatness of the man. There's no lament. This is a time in Hebrew history when laments were, were a big part of their gathering. They would lament about things. There was no lament. The mighty king of Israel died in the midst of a long-held and public soap opera with his family. The second half of his years were terrible years in terms of getting along with your kids and getting along with uh, your family and the family politics had all in engineered a set of relationships that weren't healthy. Perhaps the people were tired of the drama of it all. They were just simply worn out from it. And too much drama at the top does tend to make us lifeless. There was little grief over his death, just great big relief when it was over. And two sons vied for the position. I think there were others, but these two came to the top. Solomon and Adonijah competed for David's throne when the time of his death finally arrived. And in the end, Solomon prevailed. This is, this is Sunday School 101 in terms of what happens in the transition of power. This is a part of those great uh, line of stories that are given to us. And in reflecting on this transition of leadership, I could not help but remember a novel that I'd read a while back by Joseph Heller called God Knows. You recall Joseph Heller for Catch-22. He's a satirical writer. He's Jewish, and he's a satirical writer, uh, politically satirical. He's writing about things that are full of life and energy, but he sees them differently. Catch-22 was that about the war and about the, the bombing of Dresden. God Knows, though, is a bone, flesh-on-the-bone novel about King David and his son Solomon. Heller's book is more of a historical caricature. It's not so much historical writing, but it's a caricature rather than just a simple novel. But it's what Heller does with Solomon that makes it so intriguing. 
it's almost striking. Solomon is David's son by Bathsheba. You recall that story. In Heller's novel, Solomon is the man known throughout history for his, his wishfulness about gathering wisdom. This is what he's known for. This is what he went about in life about. He goes about, uh, he's depicted as a foolish simpleton. Just the opposite of what we think about with Solomon. We give Solomon all this credit for being this wonderfully wise guy. Heller doesn't seem that way. He sees him as a foolish simpleton. He walks around in life with clay tablets under his arm. And if somebody says something really cool, he'll, he'll etch it down and save it. And he begins to save wisdom lines. Some people collect sports memorabilia. Some collect salt and pepper shakers. Solomon collected wisdom. He loved the little lines, the little stories, the little turn of the word, and he would collect those everyday pearls of wisdom. And Solomon was a librarian for the wisdom that he overheard, and he scratched them down, and he began to bring them together and to collect them. And maybe to understand Heller's point about the simpleton, we should ask ourselves this question. How else do you explain the foolishness of life in our world? We have a lot of wisdom. There's a lot of wisdom out there. How do you explain then the foolishness of people? How do we explain that? Heller had an idea about it. We spend more than what we make. We live throwaway lives. We throw away perfectly good stuff in one season so that we can buy some more perfectly good stuff in another season. We treat our friends like they're our enemies. We ignore our children children, and wonder why they don't like us or respect us. We sit in church every week in a form of practical atheism and live as if there's no living God in the world that we work, uh, that we exist in. Solomon the simpleton is Heller's commentary on contemporary life. I sort of like that because it explains some things to us. Despite Heller's fictional story, there was a noble beauty about Solomon's reign in this passage. God asked him what he wanted, and he responded that deep down in his heart, he wanted wisdom. It was a beautiful request and God answered it. But after a few uh, notable exceptions, the illustrations in Solomon's life, where we begin to see that he actually is operating with a sense of wise ruling, we're then told that he blew it. The story is painfully honest about what took place. He compromised Israel's faith by making alliances in the neighborhood, and I, when I say the neighborhood, we're talking about the Middle East, we're talking about the tribal groups all around the nation of Israel, the tribes of Israel, these other tribal groups. Solomon went around marrying the daughters of the tribal kings so that they wouldn't go to war. It's a political move. It's foreign policy. Go over here and marry that woman. Go over there and marry that young woman. He had hundreds of wives. And they came from all different kinds of religious backgrounds and convictions. 
Solomon's reign marked the flowering of an artistic spirit. There was no, there was a cultural intellectual revolution that took place. This is the season in the Bible for wisdom. Ecclesiastes comes out of this period of time. Song of Solomon comes out of this time. We get the stories themselves and there is this natural affinity toward wisdom. Solomon was a creative soul. He was a lovely soul who put plans to many of the dreams conceived by his father. There was a, there was a place, a throne where he would rule as king, but there was no throne where God would sit and be worshiped. David had this in his heart and God turned him down about building the big temple. And Solomon had the opportunity to do that, to build this temple. But something was missing. There was a poverty of the soul that was startlingly absent from the opulence of Solomon's life. All the signs of success are there. But yet in his time, the greatness of David's life, even though it hung over like a, a shadow, hung in the air as Israel enjoyed its finest days. This is the pinnacle, the opulence of it. There was peace in the land. There was freedom that they enjoyed. And it's all remembered until this day. But there is also foolishness stirring because while Solomon demonstrated that while he was bold in public works, we're going through some, some conversations right now in our country about infrastructure. Who's going to pay for all that? I'm not suggesting anything but other than looking at what Solomon was doing, which was taxing the people in order to make this happen. You read past the words of these actions of Solomon, you begin to realize that Solomon forgot how to keep things together. Solomon reminds me of a friend of mine that I had in the 1980s in Houston who was caught up in the oil boom of the late 70s and early 80s. And these were the heady days. In Houston, the oil industry was an enormous machine, an economic machine, and the price of oil just shot way up, out of sight. Interest rates went up, of course. And there were vast sums of money to be made. I knew that there were guys in my church that were getting into the year bonuses that stripped out over anything that I thought about making as one of the pastors in their church. They didn't talk about it with me around, but there was a lot of money floating around it. And my friend was a part of this. I walked into his garage one day and I saw six or seven leather golf bags with full sets of clubs and I asked him, are you opening a sporting goods store? No, he would be out on a call visiting with a client and they would want to go play golf. He didn't have his clubs with him. He would buy a full set of clubs and a leather bag just like that. He had six or seven of them. It was amazing the stuff that he had. He had a wonderful home and a pool and all of that and he just laughed about that. And then the tide began to change because it was a wild time and it was fluctuating. And while there was huge money for the entrepreneurs, those who were willing to go out and play the game, my friend was just a good old boy from Oklahoma. He was the fire chief of a small town and he learned how to make a deal. He learned how to negotiate an oil deal. And it changed his life. 
He and his family were living in the northern suburbs of Houston. He was living a life beyond his wildest dreams. And my lasting memory was one day I went over to his house and he was out by the pool and he was on his phone. It wasn't really what I would call a cell phone, but it was a a wireless phone. He's sitting out there by his pool and he's negotiating hard-pressed with someone in the nation of India. He had a tanker full of oil outside the Gulf of Aqaba and he couldn't get it in. And he was working so hard to get this deal done. And his whole world was wrapped up in closing this deal. And he was frantically trying to save himself. And ultimately he lost everything. Because he couldn't live by the simple wisdom that Solomon could have shared with him. In the end, Solomon's wisdom did not save him. Solomon spent his time and his energies in acquisition and building and in keeping peace in his own household. He forgot to remember the simple things of God. For you see, God really only asks a few things of us. A love that is unhindered and undistracted, a simple focus upon faith, and a joyous response to the grace that we find so freely given to us. In the end, it was Solomon's practices of leading harsh policies and high taxes, and the tribes begin to fragment into north and south. And the, New Testament, the Old Testament becomes difficult to follow because of the geopolitical stuff, but just know that it's fractured. It's no longer together like David's country was. It's fractured and they're contentious and they become easy pickings to the countries around them. Solomon had the unique and generous opportunity to ask anything from God. How many of us have had this question posed to us? This unlimited possibility in front of him and he asked for a heart of wisdom. If you were invited by God to ask for anything and you knew that God would grant it, what would you ask for? Amen.